Okay, flip to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and uh, Deuteronomy 5.11 is the uh, other giving of the Ten Commandments, which says the same thing. But we'll look at Exodus 20, verse 7 here. Our message today is called, Take the Name. Take the Name. So, um, Exodus 20, verse 7, we'll read that and then pray. These are the words of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have assembled here as your people to receive instruction in how it is we are supposed to live. In a manner of speaking, we are in the barracks today discussing strategy as we consider how to take the land for your name. I ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, convict us, prepare us, and enlighten us to the tasks that you have set before us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, before we dig into the third commandment, I, this is the third of what's called the ten words. I want to sort of just take a minute and zoom out again and hopefully, hopefully make some connections that will help you see and understand the relationship of the ten words to each other and with the rest of the Pentateuch as well, the five books of Moses. Uh, Pentateuch is what we shorthand call for those five books. And all of it really starts with having a proper understanding of covenant theology. Now, uh, it may seem already like I'm taking a large detour and I've been up here 30 seconds, but I assure you that it's going to connect with the third commandment and how we should think about the third commandment in our lives and, of course, the culture around us. So just bear with me. We're going to start the path and already kind of veer off into the weeds for a second. The Bible tells us that God, when God created all things, his doing of creation, his act of creation and doing and speaking everything into existence was an institution of relationship. His creative acts was an institution of relationship. The triune God, that's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a community within the Godhead. And when God decided to create and extend his, this relationship out of his own sovereign will, no one strong-armed God in creation, hey, you should do this, it's a good idea. No one, no one gave him advice on that, he just did. But when God ex- ex- decided to extend that relationship, he did so through what we call covenant. So covenant, that relationship, how do you describe God's relationship with man, with creation? That's the word you should use every single time, covenant. Thus, we deduce that God's managing, God's supervising, and his governing of history is accomplished by making covenants with his people. So don't miss that. His governance of history, his managing of history, his supervising of history, governing over it and and orchestrating all things that comes comes to pass, right? The lot's cast into the lap, but it's every decision's from the Lord, Proverbs says. So every leaf that falls off of a tree, which will be happening soon, uh, God appointed it to be so. We, we can call that meticulous sovereignty. But when God did that, he, whenever he exercises that lordship, he does it through covenant. As history unfolds, the covenants unfold. Each successive covenant building on the next, starting with Adam, going to Noah, going to Abraham, going all the way to David, 
and going, of course, into Jesus. But each successive covenant builds on the next one in history until it comes to its zenith, until it comes to the crescendo. The, the main point of history was the new covenant, which was established by the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Bible, those covenants are presented to God, excuse me, presented by God to his people through a cumulative sequence of events. And like compound interest, they grow over time. So whenever we analyze the covenants themselves, there are several themes that show up and they are themes that usually surround the things that are said by God and including the things that are commanded. So um, as Steve read from Exodus 3 and the impending showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, who shall I say sent me? Well, tell them Yahweh, I am that I am. This is the covenant God. He's Jehovah, the Lord. Um, that's who you need to say who sent you and we know that God's name is attached with his actions but he also commands things whenever he makes covenant so the Mosaic Covenant specifically that's what we're dealing with here in Exodus uh, and and that by the way again is restated in Deut Deuteronomy if you've wondered why are there two sets of Ten Commandments in Scripture well Exodus was given to the first generation Deuteronomy was given to the next generation because the first generation was not allowed to go into the promised land so it's sort of a rehashing for the, for the kids among us, right? The next generation. Hey, just a reminder, this is what God told us to do. So before we go in and take the land under the leadership of Joshua, just remember, this is the covenant Lord and this is the covenant law. So uh, the Mosaic Covenant lays out God's sovereign control. It lays out his sovereign authority. And, and it also lays out a description of what his covenantal relationship with his people will look like in the future. So he doesn't just say, thou shalt not. And then there's case laws. You know, what do you do when someone steals? Or what do you, what do, you do in a case of manslaughter? What do you do in a case of homicide? The, that's all there in the law of God. Um, but it's also about what's going to happen in the future. Where is this relationship going? Where is the covenant going to go forward? And so based on... Um, Ray Sutton's analysis, he wrote a book that you may prosper that I think everybody should have in their library. Based on his analysis, I, I am convinced that in Scripture we can boil it down to a five-fold sequence which demonstrates the components of the covenant. When you think of a covenant, how would you describe it to somebody? Why did God do that with Adam and Eve? Why did he do it with Noah? Why did he do it with Abraham? And then why did he do it with David and in uh, 1 Chronicles 17 and 2, Tim, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Why did he do it in those passages? Well, here's what he did. And it's, you can boil it down to these five things. And if you remember, we kind of covered this already back in the foundation series on the Sermon on Covenant. So if you want to refresh or go back and listen to that. But I think it bears repeating. The five aspects to the covenant are, and by the way, they're listed here in your bulletin. The first one is God's transcendence. So there's a, an establishment of the transcendence of God. God takes hold of us. The second is a new order and hierarchy to the, to the relationship. Now that God has taken hold of us, there, we depend on him. There's a new order of things. So when a family converts to Christ, there's an order to that family that has to fit within the covenant. Third, there are lawful and unlawful stipulations, what we call law or ethics. Fourth, blessings that are given 
and curses that are threatened. If you do this, this is the blessings you'll get. If you disobey, these are the curses you get. If you want to know what's going on in our nation right now, go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read around verse 15 on to the rest of the chapter. And you will see why we're experiencing the judgments we are, because we have broken covenant and God is winning us back. And the fifth aspect is uh, future arrangements. Um, we have oaths and then um, succession. That is, there's a future to the outfit. So these five things can be seen all throughout Scripture because they're all part and parcel to God's covenant dealings with men in history. So that's, you can, the Deut Deuteronomy is laid out that way, as we'll see the whole Pentateuch is laid out that way. So all of these things that are listed, that's kind of why we do our worship the way we do here at Cross and Crown, is because we want to be reminded of the covenant. And these are all aspects to it. They are all aspects of his lordship in and over creation. So let me put it another way. The progression or the unfolding of history looks like this. So this is where history has been. This is where history is going. And we get it from the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And it goes into the rest of the Bible as well. But here's, <laughs> where is history going? Well, if you ever had to answer that question, here's what you could say. One, in history, God starts with announcing his intentions. He announces his intentions. Uh, Genesis 1-1. Kids, anyone know Genesis 1-1 offhand? Ah, you, you might remember it after I say it. In the beginning, what? Yeah. Shelly gets an extra brownie point there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. Now the, the world was form and, uh, a void and without form. Um, there's this intention of God. There's, he announces his intention. Now that includes the judgment of the old and the promise of something new. So you have the spirit of the, of the Lord hovering over the waters. Um, you have the Trinity in action right there in Genesis 1 already. So that's what history always starts with that. God announces his intentions, he judges the old, and he brings forth the new. God seeing that non-creation wasn't good, so he created that sort of thing. Second thing, after that, God redeems his people out of the old and into the new, what we call an exodus. That's the book of Exodus. God brings us out of the old and brings us into the new. Third, God establishes his people in the new world with covenantal demands based on the aforementioned covenant promises. So you're brought out of it, but now there's an expectation. This is what life is supposed to look like. And that is the book of Leviticus, as we'll see in a minute. Fourth, depending on how his people do, having been brought out of the old and into the new and told how to function, depending on how they do in that situation, there are sanctions, the applications, uh, uh, the application of the demands, which includes further blessing or further cursing. And that, of course, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, we have fifth, God brings the judgment to purify his people out of the old and into the new in order to establish them in a future new creation, which, if you're paying attention, that brings us back to point one. That is all of human history. Uh, this whole charade that is the pandemic, lockdown, erroneous, taking away liberties, those types of things, like that sort of thing is, just so you know, a judgment and God will redeem. People will say, well, I think the end of the world's coming. 
What do you think, Jason? Is the end of the world coming soon? Clearly, we're going to, you know, this is it. And I say, no, 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 no. If even America crumbles as we know it, the church will rise out on top. How can you say that? Because of what I just said here. This is the pattern of history. He shall reign until his enemies are put under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He will reign until, and he's reigning now, until his enemies are defeated. The last enemy is death. So unless you have resurrection plans next week, just go ahead and hang tight and keep in the repentance line and keep bowing before the king because it's going to be okay. Now, if you want to understand what God is doing in history, I think those five steps are a helpful way to look at it. And, and it'll sort of help you locate where we're at on the map of history. You ever stop at a rest stop and you are here? There you go. You are here. If you want to know where you're at, look at these sequences of events that we see all throughout history. Now, as I kind of hinted at, it, it needs to be stated here that the first five books of the Bible, that's the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, fit within that paradigm. Fit within that paradigm. And as a side note, I was speculating. You remember how many stones David picked up before he fought Goliath? He picked up five stones. How many did he need? One. I'm theorizing at the moment. This is just, you want to crawl into my mind this weekend. I was thinking about this. Why did, bad place to go. Don't go there. Uh, <laughs> why did he pick up five? He, he, yeah, that's, I think that's part of it, but I also think here, five is sort of the number. Remember, five commandments on one tablet, five on the other. There are five lampstands on one side of the tabernacle, five on the other. There's that five theme, five books of Moses, the five aspects to the covenant. I don't know. It seems to me that the one stone, the transcendence of God, the establishment of the authority of God, smoked Goliath in the head, ended it all because he was mocking the transcendency of God. He was mocking him, so I don't know. I'm speculating. Anyway, rabbit trail. Sorry. I owe you five minutes. Um, so I, I sort of, years ago, between James Jordan and Ray Sutton, some authors, I owe a debt to them bringing it to my attention many years ago uh, because I believe this sort of stuff helps us grasp covenant theology as we understand God's working in history. And that's why we order in our bulletin what we do the way we do because I think it reflects God's it's a reminder of history. It's a reminder of what God is doing and his faithfulness to it. And so here's how it works with the five books of Moses. <clears throat> Genesis. Genesis tells us that God, the creator, takes hold of the world. He announces his design and his intentions. God judges that it was not appropriate for the world to not exist. So he makes it and establishes a family, a church in the midst of it. And then we know how Genesis unfolds. Exodus, second book of the Bible, is the story of God moving his people out of a sin-plagued world into the sin-plagued world of the old creation, by the way, and establishes his name on them. He puts his name on them, giving them a new social order. So in the church, he gave priests and the Levites, but in the state, he gave elders and judges. So we might say that God has established his house in the world, which consists of his tabernacle and his people, a house for my name. That's a theme that comes up later throughout the, throughout the rest of the Bible, but especially with David. Leviticus, the third book, 
The third point of the covenant, what is Leviticus about? Something I've been studying a lot lately is essentially the rules and law of the new household, the economics of the people. You've been brought out. Here's how you function now. The reason there are laws about what to eat, what to sacrifice, what not to eat, what not to sacrifice, and what to do about sin when it comes in, like leprosy and the touching of unclean things, is because we have a new Garden of Eden, which means certain things are off limits. So an undefiled heart and mind is of the utmost importance. So Leviticus, if you've ever wondered, somebody, what is Leviticus about? Well, here's a shorthand way, an easy way to remember is that Leviticus is a book about legislative priorities. Le think of Leviticus legislation. Leviticus is legislation. It's God's law and how it should be carried out in a society. This new covenantal charter is given to God's people, so the need to maintain the new charter in the new land. That's the idea behind Leviticus. So if God is going to dwell with his people, they need to be holy as he is holy. And that means being a repentant bunch. The ceremonies, the sacrifices, are all about keeping the house clean for the advancement of the kingdom among the nations. And this is done by confession, repentance, and holiness. And the ceremonies we know ultimately point to Jesus, whose sacrifice is the very reason why we don't continue to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus is the sacrifice. Numbers, the fourth book in the Pentateuch. Numbers is the boots on the ground book. Um, Leviticus, what Leviticus warned us about in threatening of sanctions. Numbers carries that out. The people of God are brought together as an army of the living God, and they are brought together to establish justice and order in the land. And when they fail to do this, when they go and worship Baal and the false gods of the Canaanites, God brings his sanctions against them. So they are called to give witness, to take an oath before Yahweh in the world. And when you give a false witness, which is what the third command tells us not to do, or excuse me, uh, a later commandment tells us not to do, bearing false witness, sometimes prophets arise, sometimes false prophets arise, and they bring the people away, and you all live, end up living in a lie. Finally, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, cleanses the old order the failure of the first generation. It brings about another generation who are to be established in the new order. This is covenantal succession, dominion, going forth into the world, doing your work, doing your labor for the glory of God. Moses reminds the people of the tremendous blessing that God gives, and he warns them that if they don't memorize the law and do the law from a pure Holy Spirit-filled heart, that they will be judged. And if you remember at the end, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. He dies. But Moses passes the baton to Joshua. That's succession. Next generation. Joshua comes in, and we're back where we started in Genesis, the beginning of another new creation world. Now, I, I say all this to try to give you a, sort of a fresh reminder of the Old Testament specifically as it pertains to the Ten Commandments themselves, how they're interwoven with each other. And then I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to set you up for how we're supposed to obey the Third Commandment. So let's look at our text. Look at Exodus 27, 20 verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, a few comments are in order because this is a question we had at the Garwood house here a little bit this week. 
What does the word mean? What does this mean to not take the Lord's name in vain? Well, first, the word take means to lift up or to carry. So think of it, first of all, in those terms, to lift up or to carry. That has tremendous ramifications, as we'll see later. Second, the root word for vain in Hebrew carries with it the connotation of emptiness, devastation, or destruction, or desolation. Uh, the word, this word shav in Hebrew emphasizes hi, <laughs> the destructive nature of idolatry. So to take the name, the name of the Lord in vain is to carry it forth in a destructive manner. Okay, so just kind of sit with that for a second. Perhaps it's actually better to translate it as profanely, as in, here's my own translation summary, summarization of, of this. You shall not lift up and carry forth the name, character, and purposes of God in a profane way. That's the third commandment. You shall not lift up and carry forth the name, the character, the purposes of God in a profane way. Now, I'm reading this verse with Leviticus 19.12, and I'll just read that for you. You don't have to turn there. Which says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. To profane God's name is to attempt to curse God, is to attempt to destroy God's law, word, his order, what we call his covenantal order. That's what this verse is really getting at. To, to curse God, by the way, so it's sort of the OMG thing, which I hate, unless you mean, oh my goodness, which even then sort of flirting with disaster, shall we say. I don't think we should say that. So kids, don't say that. Don't say, oh my G-O-D. I, I don't think that's all the commandments saying, but it's tied, it's a ramification of what I'm going to tell you it is. So just know that. I don't think we should use it frivolously. But at the root of it all, we shouldn't carry God's name and, and curse God in such a way with living a lie, bearing false witness. It's tied to the other commandments, not honoring your father and mother, that sort of thing. And then we try to destroy God's covenantal order. That's what's at stake here. So these two verses, we have Exodus 27, Leviticus 19.12, and Deuteronomy 5.11. That's the counterpart part. They're bigger than just using bad words in speech. Because we come up with words all the time, history. There's, there are called, quote unquote, swear words, curse words. Some are, are used uh, in uh, terrible means, as we'll get to in a second. But it's more than just that. There's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference between you out there in the shed with the hammer and you smash your thumb and say the D word. Now, I'm not going to call that sin. You're getting your emotion out in that moment because you just hurt yourself. I'm not going to draw a hard and fast line and say that you've sinned in that moment. Sometimes just getting your emotion out and swearing uh, may be good and right and necessary. Uh, some of the other words that we'll talk, well, I'm not going to say them, FYI. So if you're all are wondering, <laughs> I'm going to just trust you know what I'm getting at here. Um, some, some of those types of swear words are just just words of emotion. But there's a difference between those and calling down a curse upon them, invoking evil upon them. Certain words fall into that category. Uh, one starts with the letter F. <laughs> you are, in that moment, calling evil upon somebody. And I believe that that 
to, to be, unless it's in divine judgment, um, to be uh, not a great thing to do, shall we say. Profanity tends to be more religious in definition. Profanity is essentially going against God in everything, intentionally disobeying him at every turn. Um, sort of the profanity of our United States government and our state of Virginia government. We are profaning God by overstepping the bounds that are given to the civil magistrate, for example. Blasphemy. There's a question of blasphemy. Blasphemy is religious in the sense that it vilifies or reviles false gods or the God of the Bible, depending on who we're talking about. It also, blasphemy can be reviling the object of worship, whatever it is, like a religious taunt of sorts. So there are different types of, of words or speech. You have profanity, you have swearing, cursing. Oftentimes today, people will use words to hurt others, right? You ever been mad at someone and you just wanted to hurt them, so you dropped all the swear words on them? <laughs> sometimes it's to malign them. Sometimes it's to ridicule them. Sometimes it's to mock them. I've been to the abortion mill. I've been on the receiving end of profanity. Uh, blasphemous profanity, too. The things that they will say about our God is unbelievable. Um, vulgar words tend to be graphic. Obscenities lack decency. Sometimes you just, I, you maybe have met people. We were um, at El Agave with my family a few weeks ago, and there's a table of guys who just kept swearing. And I was, I was so close to standing up because A, my kids are present, and B, you're just a bunch of morons because you have no intellect. All you can do is think to say those words. It's lazy. It's, it's unintelligible. It's unintelligent. It's foolish. So there is a place in the third commandment for dealing with that type of thing. And I want to make sure we're clear on that. And they should be distinguished and they all are related. But so part of what we're dealing with is the tongue. What James warns us about in the New Testament, a tongue can start a forest fire, essentially. What you say can ruin relationships. It can, it can destroy everything within its path. So we're, we are dealing with speech um, that is, you know, intelligible words that mean something. But remember what Paul says. Paul even says in Ephesians, don't let filthy speech come out of your mouth. No, uh, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So that, that is an application of the third commandment. <laughs> Think of it last week. We talked about the eyes and the ears. This week we're talking about the tongue. See how all of it's connected in the Ten Commandments. The Bible wants us to see our speech as a reflection of the sovereignty and authority of God. That's, the, that's what the third commandment is all about. The Bible wants our speech, wants the tongue, to reflect the sovereignty and authority of God. And we'll come back to this. And one more thing before we try to apply the passage. In the Bible, blasphemy is taken very seriously. Blasphemy was and is taken very seriously. To defame or subvert God with words in a society was, according to Leviticus 24.16, a capital crime. It was a capital crime. Recall that Stephen was stoned to death after being accused of what? Blasphemy. Do you recall that our Lord was put to death and what was he charged with? Blasphemy. He makes himself out to be the son of God. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You remember that passage in the book of Matthew. 
that consisted of attributing the power of God to really being the power of Satan. So calling good evil and evil good, what Isaiah warns us about. That's a most serious and unforgivable sin. Blasphemy, profanity, and vulgarities are all ultimately religious problems, and thus they are sins against God. So it's not only about using the name of God loosely by just frivolously saying, one of the worst things I ever hear people say is the name of Jesus Christ in that way, out of anger. Like, it strikes my heart. And I think it should strike our heart, where people get mad and they invoke. You know, I joked with a coworker years ago when I was social working. I, I said, why do you say that? Why don't you say, like, Barack Obama? She was a big Obama fan. So why do you say Jesus Christ in that way, using those two words, his name and his office, in such a vulgar way? Just say Barack Obama. And it became a joke, but she actually stopped saying it and was saying Barack Obama. It's like ridiculous, but hey, I guess we're better for it. So it's not just using God's name loosely. We should also not use his name irreverently, saying things like, oh my, G-O-D. We shouldn't, that's just an irreverent, disrespectful way of, of saying and invoking God. So we should not use, this is the point, we should not use God's name as though it has no real power. We're just saying words. We're also talking about invoking God's name haphazardly as though we're taking an oath before him and asking him to put a rubber stamp on our frivolous, oftentimes unhinged behavior. The third word moves beyond cursing and swearing and bad language and it moves into the actual act of oath taking. When we swear, we are taking an oath, a vow that God takes very, very seriously. And in, 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 in that moment, You've maybe have said this before. I swear on the Bible when you're trying to win an argument or something. I swear on the Bible, which I don't think we should do, by the way. I'll talk about that in a minute. But in that moment, you and the person you're arguing with could be a spouse, a friend, who knows, somebody. You are invoking God as the judge to give witness. You are bringing him into the courtroom and saying, give witness to this. And do not do that lightly. Do not do that lightly. We're asking God to judge, and we're asking him to really judge. Unless we end up like Ananias and Sapphira, who eventually drop dead before God because of their blasphemy and irreverence before God and lying to the apostles, we need to be careful. To do so emptily or, or with deviousness in our hearts is to profane the oath, which, as uh, is ultimately shown, as Rushdie pointed out, is to be contempt for God. The third word reminds us that God is near and present and always watching. So, as I learned as a kid in the church, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Now, <clears throat> oath-taking. Oath-taking has fallen on hard times today. There used to be in America religious tests for oath that were taken by politicians, ones, ones that would include a swearing that one believed in the triune God. It was a religious test of office. That's something that dates back, to, it's been gone for a while, but it dates back to the time of the colonies. And uh, instead, we've opted to swear not by God, asking him to witness and judge the office. We've decided to swear by men. Jesus rules out trivial oath-taking in Matthew 5, 33-37. And if you remember, he says that our yes should be what? 
Yes. And our no should be what? No. Our yes should be... And what he's saying... He's saying that it should be, his point is that we are either invoking the triune God, the triune personal God to superintend our oath in that moment, or we are invoking creation, inanimate objects, even like the Bible. I'm not sure that we should be swearing on the Bible. Jesus rules out swearing on the temple, the gold in the temple. He rules out swearing on religious objects. And I think his point is, is we should only invoke God in that moment. Even though we say in a courtroom, raise your right hand, so help me God. How many perjurous activities have gone on when someone swore by the name of God in vain? Who knows? You see, here's what I think Jesus is getting at. To let your yes be yes and your no be no is simply to keep yourself from being double-minded. Because if you're someone who struggles with being double-minded or perhaps you have a fear of man issue and you say one thing to a group of people but then you say another thing over here, you're being double-minded. Your yes isn't yes, your no isn't no. In fact, you are not reflecting the name of God who you bear in that moment properly. So we invoke God as a person because only God is ultimately sovereign and authoritative, which means only he can be the true enforcer of the oath. So oaths then are self-cursing. We call them self-maledictory oaths. In other words, we are vowing in that moment, uh, we are vowing harm to one's self if he is lying. When you take an oath, so God, God is my witness. I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. When you invoke God in that moment, you are heaping judgment on yourself should you fail to tell the truth and reflect the truth of God and not bear false witness. So we're putting ourselves basically out there on a limb asking God to curse us if we fail to tell the truth. What the third world, third, excuse me, the third word rules out is asking God to give witness to our false statements. Don't carry the name of God falsely means don't ask God to judge you truthfully when you're being false. We trivialize oath-taking when we ask God to endorse our stupidity. We minimize the severity of God when we believe his judgment to be a puny thing not to be concerned about. To take God's name in vain is to ask God to endorse our foolishness, which is repeatedly ruled out in the Bible. So God doesn't bless foolishness, let alone wickedness. So don't ask him to endorse it. Don't say, I'm, I swear, I'm telling the truth when you're lying with your spouse, with your friend, with your boss, any relationship. Now, I want to I pause for a minute and, and go back to the text and point something out that's very important. It is God's name, right? It's God's name that we're told not to lift up in profanity. What's the deal with the word name? Is it just G-O-D? Is it just Yahweh? Is it Jesus? Jehovah? What are we talking about? Why is it that the name of God we're told not to take up in an empty way? And here's the answer. Simply put, a name is a representation of character. Names identify a person. It's, it's who we are. It's an identifying mark, marker. And by the way, when I say your character, I don't necessarily even mean your 
character as in, oh, he's an introvert or she's an extrovert or that type of thing. I mean character as in you as an icon, an image of God. You as a person with a personality. Names reflect that. In your baptism, you were brought into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, you were brought into the covenant with all the accompanying terms and conditions of this covenant of grace. Note that God names himself in Scripture. Who gave you your name? Did you give yourself your own name? No. Your parents gave you your name, right? For better or for worse, your parents gave you your name as a reflection of who you are. God gave himself. He's the only one ever who's given him his own name to himself. Not counting people like Chad Johnson, the football player who changed his legal name to Ocho Cinco. <laughs> Different story. In fact, when, when, when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as I am, Yahweh. This was a revelation of the entire program of redemption. So everything, when, I'm, when I say everything, I mean everything. All meaning, all purpose, all identity, the, the patterns we see in creation, every single thing rests upon God. Everything. And when you are baptized into this, you now partake of this meaning, this purpose, this, this identity. Hence, the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name as though it were powerless. Do not treat the Lord's name as though you can hijack it for personal gain. And whether that's magic or under other incarnation, uh, incantational behavior, all that falls into that category. Do not treat the Lord's name as though it has no authority, no sovereignty, no transcendence, no purpose, no real historical ramifications. Don't treat God's name that way. In short, don't treat the thrice holy God like he's not the thrice holy God. To do so is identity theft. Now, Rush Dooney rightly said, he says, We can seek to dissolve or break God's name, to profane his justice and order, either by a dishonest and false use of his name and order, or by separating that order from God and assuming it to be man's creation. He goes on, we despise God's name when we separate him from his creation and ascribe its order and purpose in terms of something else. Let me just say this. Darwinian evolution is a violation of the third commandment. Secular humanism established in politics is a violation of the third commandment. It's a violation of the first and second commandment, but it's especially a violation of the third as well. And this is where I want to close our time. Because God's name is wrapped up in all of reality, everything we think, say, and do is to be a reflection of that name. So it's not just about saying God's name frivolously, though that's true. Everything, kids, all, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do is supposed to be a reflection of the name of God. We bear his name in everything. In Christ, you bear his name. Everything you do, your work comes out of your mouth what is in your mind, what is in your heart. You reflect that name. And I mentioned baptism a moment ago. When you're baptized into the name of the triune God, you have a new identity. It's as if you've been given a brand new name. You're, it's, I'm not Jason Garwood of old creation. I'm Jason Garwood in Christ, new creation. I have a new identity. I have a new heart. I have, everything is different. Because I have the name on me, 
Baptism symbolizes that. You're baptized in, you, you're a different person. You went from death to life. The name of God is set upon you. Like a mantle, you carry it with you everywhere you go. Or to modernize it, like an iPhone, you carry it with it wherever you go. That, you carry the name. And rather than taking that name and dragging it through the mud and thus profaning it in your sinful desires and actions, we are to take the name in truth. You have people in Afghanistan, Christians, who are being told to get on your knees. Do you worship Jesus Christ? What do you say in that situation? You're about to go meet him. You bear the name. Yes, I do. And maybe you try to get up and take the gun and cause a scene, but you carry the name. And rather than taking his name and carrying it forth in an empty, useless way, we take the name into the world in truth. And what does it mean to take the name in truth? It means that everything about us is grounded. Everything about you, your family, your hobbies, what you love, what you despise, everything is to be grounded in our new identity in Christ and his word. So that to take the name in truth is to be grounded in truth. To take the name in vain is to be grounded in unreality. This idea that we can govern ourselves apart from Christ and his law word, we're reaping that right now. We have taken the name irreverently. It's, it's an unreality. And that's the lie. To swear truthfully means to worship God in spirit and truth. To swear falsely is to worship and serve ourselves. The third word, the third commandment, rules out hypocrisy. What you say, and this is where it's hard, right? Because even Christians struggle with this. But what you say must align with what you believe. And what you believe must be in line with the law word of God. That's the definition of a hypocrite, right? Someone who does something, they says something they didn't do or what have you. All of those um, contradictions. So what you must say, what you say has to align with that. And let me tell you something. If what you say isn't, let me, let me rephrase this. You will always say what you believe. And if something you say is false, it's because you're believing something false. And you're believing something false because you're not grounded in the word of God. And thus, we have a breakdown in the process. We have an encroachment on the third command. And I'll end with this. Paul writes in Philippians 2. He says, and you'll remember this, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. At the name of who? Jesus. At the name of Jesus. At the person of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The goal of history is the bending of knees before the name of Jesus. We bear the name now. We carry it forth in gospel preaching and our living and our serving so that others may carry forth the, the name into the nation. So you, dear Christian, you bear, you possess, you carry you have the name on you. Don't forget it. Represent it well by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm grateful for your love and your mercy you've shown us in Christ. I'm thankful that we bear his name as a new creation. And Lord, as others seek to subvert the name of Christ, whether it's the vehicle of oppression and statism or control and 
an abusive authority, which could be in the home, it could be in the church, it could be anywhere. Father, I pray that you would crush that opposition. Lord, your name is to be revered and to be holy. In fact, your son Jesus told us how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. May your name be revered here in our county, in this in the state of Virginia, in this nation, and in the world, Father, that's what we're asking for. And we know that eventually that will be the case. And the timing is yours, of course, as you put your enemies under your feet. But, Father, we ask and pray now that that people would see the glory of your name, that they would carry it forth, that we would see your order established. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.